Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to Truest Blood, the official True Blood podcast. I'm Kristen Bauer. And I'm Deborah Ann Wool. And you've been invited in. I want to do bad things with you. On Truest Blood. Welcome back to Truest Blood, where we sink our fangs into the series episode by episode. This week on episode 203. <laughs> we examine Scratches, written by Ryle Tucker and directed by Scott Winant. And we actually have Ryle Tucker joining us this episode to tell us all about writing for the show. Her work on the show was nominated for numerous awards, including an Emmy and multiple Golden Globes. And you may also know her work from The Returned, Jessica Jones, and Sacred Lies, featuring Ryan Quantin and yours truly. Good and evil are on everyone's mind this week as our heroes debate who are the good guys and who are the bad. So let's get right to it. This week on True Blood. We start as Bill races Sookie's car down the road like the devil was chasing him. Having glamoured Jessica's family, he now lays into Sookie for her mistake. She is a loaded gun, Sookie. Not a doll for you to dress up and play with. This sends Sookie storming off into the woods while a petulant Bill pouts in the car. Alone in the dark, Sookie sees a strange half-bull, half-human creature with long, sharp claws. It attacks, leaving her paralyzed with three long scratches down her back. When his blood doesn't heal her and in fact leaves her convulsing and foaming at the mouth, Bill orders Jess to go home and takes a barely conscious Sookie to Fantasia for help. Eric calls in Dr. Ludwig, who finds a way to heal Sookie just in time for her to discover that Eric has been keeping Lafayette locked up in the cellar. You surprise me. And that is a rare quality in a breather. You disgust me. Perhaps I'll grow on you. I'd prefer cancer. Despite her disgust, she offers Eric a deal. She will go to Dallas with Bill to help find the missing sheriff if Eric releases Lafayette and pays her 10 grand. The deal is made. Jason has a frightening vision of Eddie and wrestles with his guilt in the light of day bunkhouse. He's just about ready to quit the Fellowship of the Sun when Sarah manages to sway him as she and Steve ply him with drink, dogma, and good old Southern cooking. You know, my wife must think you're pretty special. <laughs> Really? Well, Sarah doesn't whip out her pudding for just anybody. Feeling abandoned, Jessica heads over to Merlot's looking for a tasty meal and happens upon an unsuspecting Hoyt Fortenberry. But sweet Hoyt surprises her, and they head back to Bill's for a bit of necking until Bill returns to throw her off and Hoyt out. 
Running scared, Sam packs up to leave Bontom altogether. Tara, with her newfound positivity, tries to impart some of her wisdom on Sam, who will have none of it when it comes to Marianne. Later that night, there is quite the party at Marianne's, which has tempted away many of the Merlot's regulars. Jay Boathouse, you are one fiery little hellcat! <laughs> As more and more eyes turn black under Marianne's hypnotic power, Tara begins to feel a bit uneasy about it all herself. Sam takes one last romp through the woods and is caught swimming by Daphne, who removes her shirt to expose three jagged scars on her back, exactly like the scratches we saw on Sookie. So episode 203, so much super fun stuff happens this episode. Super fun. I think starting out right from the beginning... We have Dr. Ludwig, played by oh. Marsha Duras, who, I mean, we'll highlight her many times because she comes back a lot. She's a big fan favorite. <laughs> yeah, she is. And we have this amazing... I have a whole run-in with her later. That's right. Uh-huh. Yes. we've. I'm right? so excited to hear your experience of working with her <laughs> and your prosthetics down the line. But we have this amazing prosthetic claw yeah. mark down Sookie's yeah. back. It's so good. It's so it's gross. So I good. love it. And you know, it's so good that even though I've had prosthetics, even in a scene with Marsha, <laughs> I know was that's cringing. what they are. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know what, but really, it's incredible what, yeah. how it's sold. Like Anna sells oh, it. Huge. Right? I mean, that's yeah. really what does it is when you're actors. That's really what does it. Both Anna yeah. selling the pain and then yeah. also Marsha selling, you know, yeah. her handling of it is really impressive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big rehearsal process. And the prosthetic guys, I remember when I went through it, were just so excited to work yes. with the actor because it it's such a team effort. When she pulls out that goo Pustule, and is looking at yes. it. Pustules. <laughs> but that they created that, that, you know, that the prosthetics department would have sat down and said, you know, we want a piece that can be yeah. removable and then squished and sort of yes. burst in that way to really give it, you know, to sell the yes. poison. Oh, yeah. so, so amazing. <laughs> that was so good. And Anna's frothing at the mouth. Oh. and Oh, my God. That was just epic. Yeah. Well, and as we've heard from, you know, a lot of directors say and Anna herself, she really enjoys doing that kind of physical mm-hmm. work with the yes. blood and the, and the prosthetics. So, you know, you can see it, you know, she's. She's really good at it and she's having a good time. I also yeah. think it's interesting, you know, they use this Komodo dragon um, analog to the yeah. to the scratches. And again, it's this, like the teeth, like a lot of what uh-huh. they've done with the vampires, it's using science and nature as a basis mm-hmm. for magic and fantasy, which, you know, is just such a, a brilliant way to go about it. It's so grounded. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we mentioned Marcia playing Dr. Ludwig. She mm-hmm. recurs throughout the series, but she's, mm-hmm. I mean, she's so funny and this uh, absolute lack of fear in the face of vampires. <laughs> it is so funny. What is her parting line is like, he says, always a pleasure doing business with you. And she goes, fuck you. It's always a pleasure doing business with you, Dr. Ludwig. Clearly the pleasure is one-sided. And she's no fan of the fang. <laughs> That's amazing. She's no fan of the fang, he says. It's so good. It's so great. And, I, you know, I think we need to see that. We need to see humans that are just entirely unfazed by them, especially Eric, who's the master of cool. Yeah, exactly. 
And then we have Pam and her pumps is a very important part of this episode. Her mm. poor, that's the mm-hmm. biggest, uh, the biggest victim of this whole episode is Pam's, Pam's poor pumps. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm biased, but I happen <laughs> to agree with you. I just love how, you know, she's loyal, but lazy. I just, yeah. I, that was, cause you know, at this point we, I, the writers possibly, I don't know, didn't know a ton about Pam. So all mm-hmm. these things are being mm-hmm. set, you know, in her character, little piece by little piece. When even those little moments, I, I look at that and I'm like, Pam's not that obedient a progeny. Like Jessica's not that far behind. And I was watching right, this and I was true. like, Jessica's just kind of like a little budding Pam, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I guess, you know, that happens more and more as we go where yeah. she becomes kind of auntie Pam yeah. and you call her for advice and, you know, this is your new I family. Well, we always forget that like Jessica spent two weeks with Pam and Eric oh, right, during her right. formative <laughs> Yeah. Time that girl is extremely annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure I picked up a few things during that time from Pam. Yes, I'm sure. I like and, to think and so. And was possibly even directed to make life for Bill as hard as possible. So, <laughs> Yeah, yes. And that's another thing that grew over the years that was super fun for yeah. me and, you know, hopefully for Stephen. But that rivalry, that sort of always looking down on each other. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. So then I think, you know, for me, at least one of the highlights of this episode is that Jessica and Hoyt meet for the first time, which became a huge part of my storyline on this show. Those Um, scenes, Deb, I could go on and on. I could do the (laughs) whole episode about those scenes because they are just electric and you are so beautiful. (laughs) Oh my God. It's painful. It's painful. And everything, the costumes and the every little moment and and the pauses you and Jim, you know, Hoy. Mm. Oh, did you see, I'm already going to want to take the whole (laughs) podcast. So did you and he rehearse and work together? Like, so not that's not this episode. We oh my we gosh. may have even filmed this before the table read. So okay. I had maybe seen him at previous table reads, but we really officially met like the day we started making out because I think we filmed yeah. the stuff at Bill's first. So we met, we shook hands, we said, okay, great, here we're going to do this scene. And then it was it yeah. was a couple of days later that we did the Merlot scene after in some ways we were a little more comfortable with each other. Right. But in the Kristen yeah. school of acting, I like that because it is <laughs> right. Because it's like how it is. You know, yeah, you just yeah. met. We had just met. And and it really and I think also, oh, gosh, might have been my first on screen kiss. I had obviously oh. been kissing boys, you know, just myself for a little while. Deb. And I <laughs> and had done Ooh. it on stage uh, you know, uh, <laughs> before then. But my first time on camera, which is a little strange. It is, Um, isn't it? Yeah. But I think luckily, and we'll, you know, we're very lucky we'll get a chance to speak with Jim later this season. You know, he was very sweet. He had a lot of the same qualities that Hoyt has, which is that he was very protective and very open with me. And so, you know, right off the bat, I think we felt quite comfortable sharing all of our thoughts and ideas with one another. He was the kind of person that liked to rehearse. So down the line, we did start doing that as, as we needed it. Um, But for this, all of this was pretty much 
first time. <laughs> it's so beautiful and so wonderful. I, I could go on and on and you are so funny <laughs> in the car. So yes, we, we just start like, off in the car. <laughs> I, I love it. Cause you know, it's this, gosh, Bill is not a very good maker right off the start. <laughs> He's saying all of these terrible things about her, and she's right there in the back seat. Yeah. So, yeah, I love this opening sequence. I hate you so fucking much. Be quiet. Eat shit. I said be quiet. <laughs> so, it is so good. I this mean, she is his teenager. worst nightmare, man. <laughs> she is his worst nightmare. Oh, that is so good. He abandons her again, right? Like he yeah. has to go take care of Sookie. And so he just sends her home. And like, it's like a, mm -hmm. a new puppy, right? Like they need things mm -hmm. to occupy them. <laughs> you, know? you can't just send a teenager home alone with nothing to do. Right. They're going to cause puppy proof trouble. that house. Nothing. No, he did he not baby vampire proof that house. So, you know, I think it's no surprise that she gets up to a little bit of trouble. And in yeah. the end, what's so lovely about it, the arc of this whole story and we kind of get into it in the next episode is that really Jessica's brand of trouble is not as terrifying as Bill thinks it is. Right. 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 She's really been so repressed her whole life that yeah. small things feel like a huge rebellion and he's not wrong. She's dangerous. Right. But I do think she's, you know, it ends up being a much more vulnerable experience for her. Mm -hmm. And I love that play on it because we've just come from seeing her look like she's going to kill her father. Yes. And he says she has a loaded gun. Yes. And then we go through this next sequence. The fun of it, I think, is mm -hmm. that turn, right? I mean, yes, I, I really thought of that moment as, you know, this is a girl pretending to be a woman. Right. This is a predator pretending right. to be prey, especially right. as in, you know, in a male dominated world, women are always the hunted. And so always. in this case, she gets to be the hunter. And yes. I think that kind of, that feels powerful. And I think also sure. for a girl like that, male attention feels powerful. So, you know, as I walked into Merlot's, I remember the very first take of that scene setup was the the stepping walking into Merlot's and turning and doing that like tracking shot yes. through all the customers. Yes. And the first thing I saw when I stepped in is there's a big sign behind the bar that says no one under 21 allowed. <sighs> and I remember seeing that as Jessica and going, okay, this whole thing just clicked for me. I know what this oh, is, you know, like, okay, I've crossed a boundary. This is a little dangerous. I'm right. I'm doing something I'm not supposed to. It's that little rebellion. Right. And that just like kicked everything off for me. Yes. Um, I love that that sign was there to just remind me how, how naughty I was being. Yeah. And then, and then you get this guy who is like, <laughs> you're so sweet. And, you know, he's sort of, he's sort of disarming. the. Yes, the, he is. He seems he, like he'd be an easy mark, right? Like yeah. she could just use him and eat him and it would be over. But I think he reminds her what she really is, which is just a, a girl and right. a worthy one at that, which no one ever says to Jessica, you know? Such an unlikely but perfect pairing, really. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because then he says, you know, what do you want to eat? Oh my gosh, that whole line about... <laughs> 
Yes. I mean, it's a favorite. Yes, that because um, Dwight's such a dork. But yes, his chicken fried steak line. You should try the chicken fried steak because it's uh, oh, it's like a chicken and the steak got together and made a baby. It's delicious, crispy baby. And, uh, <laughs> that is so good. Oh, it's great. It is you know, so good. She's a dork too, right? Like it's we such a dork. We need we need to know that like they're actually exactly the same in many ways. Right. But then the next thing she has to do is decide like to say, yeah. you know, I already had dinner or I am a vampire and that turn is yeah. so great. It looks like you feel, oh, oh no. And then yeah. you go, I'll, the way that you decide to let him know you're a vampire, I'll have a true blood. Yeah. And I then think- he does another turn. Yes, exactly. Right? From like, whoa, to that's so cool. Yeah. I mean, that's the brilliance, I think, of what Rael wrote in this yeah. scene is, is just constant turns. It starts yeah. as one thing. It starts as a predator prey. It moves yeah. to boy girl. It moves yeah. to will he reject me? It moves to yeah. wait. This is exciting and new. And every every turn feels like a a cold shock up your spine. You know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because once you get to the house, yes. You know, you're two teenagers, basically. Yeah. And yeah. oh, my God, I just like that first bonding line moment where he's like, this is so cool. You live at Vampire Bills <laughs> and, you know, and then you go, it's full of creepy stuff. And he makes me sleep in a hole. Yeah. And his response is, yeah, my mama keeps her dog collection in my closet. Her doll. And then, oh, yeah. you've got we video game. <laughs> Well, again, it's like these little things. They didn't even realize how right they are, or at least how similar they are. They both have yeah. these parents that won't let them grow up yeah. um, and yeah, don't right, trust right. them. Don't trust right. them to grow up. Right. Uh, but it's interesting because I remember because Jessica was 17 and Hoyt was older, I remember that being a big deal. I remember Rael uh-huh. being very worried about that, that that was going to oh. be sending the wrong message, that, you know, did we really want to go forward with a romantic relationship oh. that was like that? Right. So I remember there was a lot of conversation about it, and huh. it a lot was done in the direction of those scenes, the choices that Jim and I made, the writing, to make sure that Jess always had all the power. Okay. So she's always initiating. He's always holding back. We right. feel at any moment she could be the one to tear him apart. <laughs> right. Um, right. And that and that reminding everyone that not only is Jess very powerful, but Hoyt is also arrested in some way. You know, he has mm-hmm. some arrested development because of his mom. He's mm-hmm. a much because he might mom. be Jason's age, but he's a lot younger than Jason is, he is. a lot more inexperienced. Yes. And so it isn't it isn't quite the same thing for him. So I, I remember wanting all of us wanting to be very careful about that and make sure that we told a really positive story. <laughs> well, it worked because I didn't even think of that. Sure. Age. Sure. You right? Like that's the hope is really, you know, showing yeah. that she is making all of these choices um, and that he, you know, he's really just along for her terrifying ride. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, I have waited too long. And yeah. then it reverses again. Oh, yes. 
Oh, the fang boner. Which is boner. so cute. Your fang boner. My fang boner. And I have I have relatively large teeth, just me. So the fangs look so dorky on me. Like they really look like they're too big for my mouth, which is perfect, you know, it's for this, this young girl to feel like, oh, my God, my fangs are the wrong size. You know, it feels... And they really really don't like throughout the show, they always look fierce, but it is interesting how you playing this teenage scene and these teenage feelings and the way there was one where you're like, oh my God, he likes me. Where normally, you know, a human would bite their bottom lip, but you kind (laughs) of try, but both your fangs are on the outside. It's actually like a freeze frame in the DVD. Oh and it's so God. cute because you're like, oh, my God, he likes me. It's like a little like overbite or something. Yes, <laughs> it's so freaking cute. But we have, you know, I mean, he's so understanding, which is so amazing. But we have one of my favorite lines and a line yeah. that gets quoted to me a lot. God, this is so embarrassing. I'd die if I wasn't already dead. <laughs> I mean, that is just Ryle Tucker. Uh, it is the just height of her Tucker. powers. Yeah. <laughs> just so good. She's so amazing. And then we, you know, we end all this. It's very, you know, I think we're always meant to be a little on the edge of our seat. Will Jessica yeah. get carried away? You yeah. know, is this, is this kissing going to end up being biting and yeah. no more Hoyt Fortenberry? But she's able to hold herself back, which I think is really a testament, not only to her, but to Hoyt, because I'm sure yeah. he's enraptured her in some way totally but we end with this spectacular throw across the room from bill yeah so this is wire work now i was new to the game so i didn't do this stunt there was a stunt woman that did this fly across the room so she's in a wig and a the same dress and there's a harness underneath the dress and wires that poke through little holes at the back of it so mm-hmm. that when Bill grabs her and throws her over a pulley, there's some big, strong dudes on the other end that just pull really hard and yeah. fly her into the room. Mm-hmm. Then we cut. I go and stand in the place where she fell. And I, I look at sort of the position she took when she hit the ground. Yeah. And as soon as they call action, my job is basically to throw myself to the ground into the same position that she was yes. in. So that it matches. And then I can jump right up and start to do my lines. Yes. And I remember in that moment, because I also, I love stunt work. I love being as physical as I can and doing as much as is safe and makes sense. So I remember using all of my stage combat training to just throw myself to the floor as hard as I could um, so that they would know that I was game and that I was physical and that in the future, if they wanted to put me on the wire, I would be ready for that. And uh, yep. they did. So in future seasons, I got to do some of oh, my you own did. wire work. Yeah. I was really exciting. In fact, I have a picture on my wall of me hanging on a wire with my face in a camera. And it was like, it's just a really, it was a gift that uh, the production oh, gave me. That's so cool. Yeah. It was very I cool. have some very funny wire stories for me not doing it and also doing it. The funny <laughs> ones are me doing it, of course. The cool <laughs> ones are someone else doing it. But yeah, I, I I look forward to those seasons on this podcast. And now for a quick bite. Movie magic, continuity in film. Continuity is one of the most difficult aspects of filmmaking. Continuity ensures that each shot matches so that when an editor cuts the footage together, everything aligns. This can range from the big picture items like lighting and eyeline down to the nitty gritty of how an actor holds a prop or how much food is eaten off a plate each take and even what line the actor takes a bite on. 
which is why I don't eat on camera. <laughs> I can be so hard to keep it consistent every single time. So sometimes still shots are taken at the top and bottom of a scene for reference. Each individual department keeps an eye on their area. So props, lighting, costumes, and makeup make sure that everything looks the same for each setup. And there's a script supervisor that keeps an eye on all of it. But still, sometimes something slips past and you get what we call a continuity error. But at the end of the day, any good editor will tell you that continuity is not really a top priority unless it takes an audience out of the scene. The emotion and story of the scene, like in those wonderful Jess and Hoyt scenes, it always takes precedence. And when that is so strong, most continuity errors go completely unnoticed. So we're talking a little bit about good and evil and everything Mm -hmm. in between this Mm -hmm. episode. This is a a very big theme for this episode that really exemplifies the whole season, the conversation that we're going to be having this season. Very much. Because I'm a giant nerd, it reminded me of a favorite (laughs) line from Shakespeare that I I love from Richard III. He was the ultimate evil schemer. Okay. Um, And his line is, and thus I clothe my naked villainy and seem a saint when most I play the devil. So this idea Hmm. that the devil will often appear to us or dress up like a saint, um, looking like what we imagine goodness to look like in order to get us to trust them. And I think really in this episode, we're seeing that illustrated in a number of different relationships. Right. And vice versa, right? Where we have the Light of Day Institute, literally the light of day. (laughs) You know, you're like, well, that's good. That's nice. Yes. there, And even Suki has a a line coming up, I think, in the next episode where she says, like, they're Uh a church. How bad could they be? And Bill says, boy, churches have done a lot of terrible things in the name of religion. Yes. Uh, So we'll get to that. that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think, yeah, you know, Sarah and Steve have this aura of goodness and and righteousness and and i think in this world too vampires do do a lot of terrible things and so they have a lot of evidence and ground to stand on yeah for their prejudice even though it is still prejudice yes yes boy godrick has a great line coming up (laughs) in future episodes regarding that. Oh, it's so hard to I not know. skip oh, forward. But so, yeah, because as you said, this is a big theme. That this we is a be big theme. To a lot. And it's beautiful in the writing. It you is. Know. But, you know, so mm-hmm. we have Jason, who I think it's so amazing because his conscience is really telling him the right things, right? Yes. He has this vision of Eddie. He he goes to this, you know, group therapy that Sarah yes. Newman is running. and And he says this. My girlfriend, she staked a vampire right in front of me. His name was Eddie, and he was gay. But he he was a real nice person. He wasn't a person, Jason. Oh. Right. And, you know, that's what Amy said to him last season. She also corrected him and said he's not a person. Right. And so, you know, I think Jason's like we said, his conscience is right in the in the right spot. He in the knows right spot. That Eddie was right and he and Amy was were wrong. Yeah. He he even walks out because he he goes, This isn't for me. You know, girl, my sister's vampire boyfriend treats her pretty great and she really loves him, you know. Yeah. So he walks out and Sarah 
God, Anna Camp's a good actress. I mean, she just, she uses sympathy and heart and authenticity and empathy empathy to just turn him right around. So again, it's this, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing. It's this this evil intent wrapped in this lovely seductive package. And she even talks about vampires being seductive when really, gosh, does she just draw you right in. No, we want to see the best in others so badly that sometimes we overlook the worst. And right in that sequence, she goes, we are so much the same. Yeah. And yeah. it's the perfect Achilles heel for Jason. Yes. Because she's beautiful. She's in that cute little outfit. Yes. And then she takes his hands and they kneel down together. And it just, he wants so badly to have his conscience cleaned. Yes. And she gives him that opportunity. And and yeah. Steve does it later, which with one one of the, I think, the best lines to sort of encapsulate this this idea yeah. of the fellowship of the sun. So good. Well, you cannot love evil. You have to hate it. So hating evil is really loving good. good. <laughs> oh my God, Michael. His delivery. I, he's delicious. I just everything. He's he does so is delicious. delicious. You know, when I saw that line in the episode, I had to replay it three times to go, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute. How do we track this logic? And I'm like, <laughs> that is incredible. It's genius because it, it, it's genius. it does everything that Steve needs it to do. It it convinces Jason, it uh, assuages him of his guilt, it makes Steve seem like the hero. Yeah, it gives uh, clarity to the whole yeah. you know, moving forward. This is what we do. We hate yeah. evil. So Which we're makes doing us great. Good. Yeah. It makes us great. Oh, so we can move in then to Eric and Bill, which is a bit more in the shades of gray territory. Yeah, um, love that. You know, as things are set up at this point, Eric really seems like the badder vampire and Bill right. seems like the gooder vampire. Yep. And there's this this lovely line, actually, that Bill says to Sookie after she's sort of ragging on Eric for what he did to Lafayette. Sookie, most of us. Vampire, human or otherwise, are capable of both good and evil, often simultaneously. You know, Stephen's delivery is so thoughtful and has the feel of someone who's been around a long time. Yes. And also Steve knowing what's coming up for Bill. And we're still Mm -hmm. a little ways away from this reveal, but Mm -hmm. he's telling her pretty clearly here Mm -hmm. that he is not all good and mm-hmm. Eric is not all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it just sets up the, the meat of this story for this season and onward. And their relationship, right? Oh, yeah. I love like, them right, We start to see this, like, I don't know, later we called it a bromance. And, you know, yes, but, it like, is. But it really, they're so good together. They're excellent. And, and in the upcoming scenes, we'll talk more about how their relationship uh, evolves. <laughs> yes. Yes. Shall we say? Yes. And then and, last but not least, yes, yeah. we have Marianne and Sam. I just love watching Michelle Forbes. <sighs> she is just absolutely speaking of a wolf in sheep's clothing. She <laughs> is just so she's a guru. She just plows through with her charm and it's yes. impossible to not fall in love with her. And and she for Tara, 
almost intentionally, she seems to represent everything that she didn't get from her mother, from right. her previous relationships. Yeah. And even though we know she's up to no good, <laughs> yeah, we still, I still want Tara to hear those things. And, you know, Tara starts know. out playing the positivity guru, you know, sort of espousing these same words that Marianne uses on Sam at the very beginning. <laughs> what is it with you and Marianne? What's she ever done to you other than just drop almost $300 in your bar tonight? Yeah. <laughs> so Sam seems like the asshole. Yeah, Sam seems like the asshole now. Yeah. Right. And then she says, like, you don't even know her. And he goes, yeah. neither do you. Yeah. But boy, do I get why Tara is sucked in, you know? Um, I do too. I it's like it's... my whole dating life, my whole history of dating. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I really want this person to be this person. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and they're just not. And I think it's really, it's this first real Marianne rager, you know, that right. she throws tonight is the first time that I think Tara really starts to see it's not all that it seems. But, right. but resisting the devil is hard, man. I know. Resisting the devil is hard when it's just wrapped up in an eggs package. In an eggs package and in this like sweet, supportive mother figure, Marianne. In this mansion. Yeah. It's all really hard to tear yourself away from. But Sam is quite literally trying to run from the devil. He is trying to leave town and yet everything around him is asking him to stay. Yes. Including. Yes, including gorgeous Daphne, who, you know, again, seems to see him in a way that Suki and Tara never did. But again, at the very end of this episode, we see these scars on her back and you start to wonder, is she the victim or is she another wolf? Hard to say. And then we have one of our favorite scenes, Terry. Even Terry is trying to keep Sam in town, (laughs) possibly for more selfish reasons. (laughs) Yeah, because what is that where he's like, Terry, could you cover the bar for me? He goes, Sam, I got to tell you, I wouldn't be your first choice. He's like, you weren't. (laughs) I called and he lists like five people. I called everyone, basically. Arlene, Suki. He goes to the whole list. And then what does he say? He's pissed at him. He said, God, I was never in a foxhole with you. Yeah. Terry, you know, Terry ends up being, you know, as the show goes on, really a strong voice of reason. Everyone should really listen to Terry. And in this case, Sam probably should. And and I think a lot of Sam's journey this season is being set up that he he's a runner, right? Sam's a runner. Right. He's a runner. And this season, he's going to have to learn to stay and face it. He sure does. so excited to introduce Raelle Tucker, the breathtakingly exciting writer (laughs) who wrote so many incredible scenes and dialogue and arcs for Jessica and Pam and everybody else. Hi, Raelle. Hi. Hi, beautiful, (laughs) brilliant women who I adore. Right back at you. Likewise. Yeah. What's so interesting about doing this podcast is we internet stalk you, right? Which we didn't do while working together. So it's so funny with everyone. I find out so much that I did not know. (laughs) And then I have so many questions. 
it is an amazing, unique life, you know, on Wikipedia. So, (laughs) but also it's pretty meteoric. Yeah. I've lived many lifetimes. No one probably (laughs) would have bet that I would end up where I ended up and have had the career that I've been so fortunate Hmm. to have. Yeah. How did you end up with this job and how did that go? Well, you know, I'm going to tell you the short version. I'm a hippie kid who grew up in Spain. I'm a high school dropout. I moved to Los Angeles at 17, lived on my own, started working as an exotic dancer so I could fund my own plays, opened my own theater company. And that was basically what I was doing until I got on a show called Project Greenlight. Right. Um, And I had a breakthrough reality television is one of the contestants (laughs) that got me an agent. So that's my ridiculous backstory. The thing that happened with this show is that Six Feet Under was the first time I actually thought I could write television. Until Mm. that point, I thought I was going to be a playwright. I was going to write movies because my sensibility seemed too fringe for television. I didn't think there would be a place for me. And I watched Six Feet Under and I thought, oh my God, that's where I belong. And I became obsessed with that show. And so I heard, because we ended up getting, having the same agent at at United Talent Agency, that Alan was developing True Blood. So I started reading Charlene Harris's books before I ever got the chance to meet him. I got this meeting with Alan and just the meeting changed my life. Just the fact, because he only met I don't know how many, but very few writers. You couldn't get that meeting, you know? And it was going to the meeting. I was weeping. I'm going to cry now. I was weeping. I know. I'm going to cry. I'm crying too thinking about it. Going in because I said, I was at the point where I was ready to quit television because I thought I can't write this kind of the the commercial CW stuff that I was being hired for. And I was like, this isn't going to be for me. And him trusting me and giving me this job and even just taking that meeting was like, oh, no, actually, like there's a place for me in television. Oh, my God. such a mess because he changed my whole entire life and everything I've gotten to do since is because of him. Oh, I always cry, but somehow I didn't bring (laughs) with me, Dad. Do I not know myself? But Alan was so embarrassed by me every time I do this because I do this all the time okay every time I talk about him and like the show I cry and he's so he just can't stand it he's like will you stop being so grateful it's embarrassing it makes me feel weird well look if if the goal of this only goal of this podcast is to embarrass Alan Ball I'm okay with that (laughs) if we can embarrass him by telling him over and over again how much we appreciate and love the show then we have done a good job I rewatched for the first time since I left the show, yeah. uh, episode 203, and it was such a walk down memory lane. Ugh. It's almost like what I imagine when people talk about when you take Ambien and you sleepwalk. I- I'm watching this episode <laughs> going, I don't remember writing any of this. Oh my None God, of it. really? And it's wow. kind of amazing that I did. And uh, yeah. right. there are a few exceptions where I remember the process very well, and one of those is definitely... Hoyt and Jessica, which is probably still one of my favorite scenes in any episode of television that I have ever been a part of. Is it them in Merlots? Yes. Meeting in Merlots or the one where she has a fang boner? I think it's the arc, (laughs) but the Merlots meeting, I had a very clear picture of exactly what that was. And that was the Mm -hmm. moment where Scott Wynette took my hand and was like, tell me what you see. And I was like, it's this music. Uh It's this color. It was so many different things that we talked about visually that he 
allowed me to participate in a way as a yeah. writer that I'd never been able to participate before because that scene was uh, in my heart mm. for so many reasons, that whole arc really, and those characters together. Yeah. But the reason yeah. I think I love it so much is partly because I grew up reading, I grew up in the Ibiza, Spain, and we didn't have access to English books and I was an American. So the only mm. books I could get were stuff you sold at the airport. So I uh. read a lot of like Stephen King and historical romance novels. Yeah. And those were my oh. earliest influences and things that I loved. And so there yes. was something about this show that brought both of those things together. Yeah. yeah. And that scene, yep. getting to write the sweetness of that moment, but underneath mm -hmm. all of that sweetness, <laughs> there are these fangs and there's this real mm -hmm. sort of emotional, dark emotional journey that they're both on. And yet mm -hmm. they live in this bubble of innocence and... Yeah and mm -hmm. in finding each other and it feels like destiny when you watch it these yeah. two characters mm -hmm. in that booth yeah it's it's a perfect scene it really is. in my opinion <laughs> well i mean i talk about it the real the real treat of it as an actor getting that scene mm -hmm. are the turns that not only is the audience you know turning oh it's this kind of scene oh no wait it's that but the characters mm -hmm. and especially for jessica hoyt maybe thinks Mm -hmm. two things throughout the scene. Oh, pretty mm -hmm. girl. Oh, vampire girl. But for Jessica to make these turns from like hunter to teenager to embarrassed about who she is to acceptance to, I mean, that's so much fun to be surprised that many times as a character in a scene is for an actor, like a dream <laughs> scene to get to play those variations. And so yeah, I it's one of my favorites. You took it to a place, the subtlety that you bring and those turns that you bring just in your eyes. It's you're oh. luminescent in that scene and it's beautiful. I will say. She really is. Too, though, that Hoyt, the reason to me it works is that Hoyt yeah. is more complicated than that. Like oh, yeah. when he talks about, you know, later in the episode, he talks about how his mother keeps yeah. her doll collection in keeps his closet. Her dog collection in his closet. Like he's, he's <laughs> feeling that he has no power and no place. Yeah. And he's so yeah. alone in the world, too, you know, and having the whole yeah. events of the previous season and what's happened with Jason and Renee and all of these characters has left Hoyt sitting alone in that yeah. booth and ungrounded. And also, I've always thought it's really interesting, which is revealed in a later episode, of course, that, that he's a virgin and that, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. his journey of, of saving himself too long <laughs> and then not being able to sort of cross that milestone. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. complicated. Mm -hmm. So... To me, mm -hmm. the reason the scene works is because there's so much humanity and specificity and complexity in both of your characters mm -hmm. that are set up long mm -hmm. before I showed up, you know, yeah. that were sort of in their inception. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and you just want these two people to find each other, to find someone together. Yeah. It's just something mm -hmm. that you, you know, you root for. And to me, my favorite moments of any show are, are really sort of romantic <laughs> moments <laughs> that are also twisted and complicated and yes. unconventional mm -hmm. well i think you also did in season mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. the suki and bill you know together on the bearskin rug in front of the fire which involves romance and biting and all of those you know double themes going on 
Yes, I did write Sookie running across the graveyard in the white <laughs> nightgown. We took this really yep. classic oh. imagery and we mm-hmm. we just spun it. You know, we took it to yeah. a darker place than than those those scenes normally ever go when Sookie's ecstatic mm-hmm. about him biting her. It's yes. so graphic and bloody. I, and it's also her virginity, you know? Yeah. So that was really also one of my favorite, favorite yeah. scripts that I got to write for the show because, again, it's incorporating this tone of genre and thriller and grit and sort of almost political activism Yeah, with romance, with just gushy, sexy, <laughs> gauzy sweetness. Like, that is what attracted me to True Blood was the yeah. mishmash of these tones I'd never seen anything that did that and it felt I felt so weirdly mm-hmm. at home inside oh, of it uh, that scene with Bill and Sookie starting with the running across the the cemetery to the biting to me that is like a thesis statement for true blood mm-hmm. like if you were to put that mm-hmm. at the top of the essay and say this is an example of what we're trying to get you know what we're striving for with this show I think it is kind of the perfect example in the same episode as Grand's funeral yeah. the pie eating yes. I mean, that's one heck of an episode. (laughs) It really was. And it was the first episode I got to write for the show. I was terrified. And so I put everything Mm -hmm. I had in my heart in that script. Yeah. Um, I I don't know that I've ever cared as much while I was writing an episode of someone else's show as that episode. My mother is a pie baker and it runs in our family. She taught me to bake pies. My father also baked pies. There are so many pieces within really each episode where Alan allowed all of us to put our own lives into the show in a way that gave it an emotional resonance because there's there was truth in yeah. it. In mm-hmm. 203, there's Marianne. Yes. And mm-hmm. my mother, the fun, the fun story I have to tell about Marianne is that when my mother came to the premiere of season two, she turned to me after watching the first couple episodes and she says, Embarrassed, she says, does everyone here know that I'm Marianne? (gasps) (laughs) Because my mother is a hippie, crazy woman of the 70s who joined, you know, cults and traveled around the world and rolled joints at the breakfast table and led, you know, parties full of women dancing with their clothes off. This was my childhood. So when we were in that writer's room, we talked a lot about my mother and Marianne. We talked about her in her wardrobe. We talked about her, the scene where she rolls a joint at the table. She says, this trick, this is something I picked up in Ibiza. That's where I grew up. There was so much of her in that character, including, spoiler alert, the meat statue that happens at the end of the season my mother did a party that made they made a balinese offering party where they built a man made out of fruit and they danced around it naked basically wow Um, and so when i told that story we started creating the meat statue (laughs) meat man yeah yes which is just super fucking weird but to me all of these details they grown back to my own childhood and my life particularly in season two so that's an example of just wow. alan creating a space where he took things that were personal to us and he let us run with them and twist them and turn them into strange unique television that can only come from some kind of truth so interesting. So does that how does that then relate as you're writing Tara, who 
to some degree is sort of not playing the you in that relationship, but, you know, in, is in relation to Marianne in that way. Does some of your own experience come into that as well? Absolutely. Tara is me as a teenage girl. Yeah. Tara is me going, ah, what the hell are you all doing here? <laughs> you know, but then there's some part of you that's actually drawn in to yeah. the magic, right? Those kind of right. strange, unique right. moments are both kind of repulsive when you're a teenage kid. You're like, oh my God, my mother doesn't have any clothes on and all of her friends are dancing around. This is horrible. And then on some side, you're kind of like, this is fun and weird and wacky and you get sort of caught up in the, the adventure. So yeah, I can relate to being very skeptical (laughs) and horrified by my, by my childhood. And then I can also say that now I'm just so grateful that I have those stories Mm. and those adventures to draw from. Mm. Let's just talk about Hoyt. Oh my God, I'm going to cry while I'm saying this funny (laughs) line. You should try the chicken fried steak. It's like chicken and a steak got together and made a baby, a delicious, crispy baby. But my favorite thing about that is how he delivered it. It just yeah. died in his mouth. Yeah. Like, it, it just he couldn't just... even, get, like, it was like he realized halfway through the sentence yes. that this is just the wrong direction to go. And he had to finish the sentence, which was so brilliant. That was so, so much fun to write True Blood because so much of it required that you come from a very truthful, earnest place uh-huh. and you yes. say, the most ridiculous <laughs> things. Wasn't that the greatest? It was yeah. such a joy. It was so liberating to be like, what is the stupidest thing I could ever say right now? I'm yeah. going to write that. You right. know? Yes. I mean, listen to this line about, I mean, there's so many, Rao, but about evil. So this is Steve Newland. Well, you cannot love evil. You have to hate it. So hating evil is really loving good (laughs) and his delivery again it's yeah spot on delivery Uh, well the funny thing about that is yeah i totally 100 percent disagree with everything he's saying (laughs) i just want to say totally but like the the earnestness with which he's explaining this this sort of patronizing earnestness like is just he's so hilarious i remember watching him and jason in scenes and we were just laughing so hard that it was screwing up takes because (laughs) they were just completely in character, but every line, it's like they were just chewing on it and Uh, just, you know, like they egged each other on to be even more sort of committed to the silliness of these characters in this situation. Yeah. I love that scene. It's sort of the best way to highlight how ridiculous and stupid some a viewpoint is <laughs> to really write for it and have the actor really relish and roll in that. It's like the best way to point out that that doesn't really work. That viewpoint. It's exactly the polar opposite of what I believe, because I right. actually don't really believe in good and evil. And I don't really write characters that are right. either good or evil. But I do think from my non-religious outside point of view on all of that, that that sometimes the simplicity of that is really appealing to people Mm -hmm. that you could just believe that there are categories of humans and that makes everything easy, you know? And I think sometimes that's why people turn to, you know, cults, let's call it, because that's what Stephen Mm Lewis's world is. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really the appeal is to make sense of the world in a way that, that you can digest. And for Jason, that's what he wants after 
after the complexity and you know horror of everything that's just happened to him in the first season, yeah. he wants to make sense of mm-hmm. it. He wants it to be easy so he knows what to do and can be a good guy. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. and that's why it works is the innocence of, of, of Jason Stackhouse falling into this really sort of well-explained, simplistic yeah. view on the world. That is... Well, uh, and it's so much harder. I mean, you have Bill saying to Sookie, you know, vampire, human or otherwise, we're capable of both good and evil, mm-hmm. often simultaneously, which is the more complex, difficult thing yeah. to take on. But, you know, I think yeah. in watching this episode and really seeing how it's setting up the rest of the season and, you know, the... Um, introduction of Godric and all of the sort of, again, more complex view of humanity and vampire <laughs> through his eyes. But is this idea that, you know, the Marianne's and the Steve Newlands and the Sarah Newlands, they all have this outward appearance of being so good and so fun and so positive and all these things when what's roiling underneath is much more sinister, which, you know, fits right in with all the thematics you've been talking about. So I, again, you know, this episode for me is so pivotal for the season because it just starts to sort of, we've set everything up, we've closed things down from last season. And now we're just kind of like starting to narrow the channel into what is this season about? So is that mm-hmm. is that important to you as a writer? Do you think much about, you know, you have to take care of so many things, characters, motivations, storyline that just has to get told. But what about those like deeper themes? Is that something that's important to you to you know make sure is present in all of your episodes or? Yeah, I don't know how to write any other way. Okay. Everything that I work on is saying something that's important to me. Yeah. It has to be. I can't mm-hmm. I can't just write toward mm-hmm. the joke. I cannot. Yeah. It's. I think those are fine and great. And I really admire there were writers in the room that did that more clearly, that that was what their motivation was always. Where's the funny? And, you know, and that's what we're working toward. And then we needed that, you know, but that wasn't me ever. I was always sort of saying, what is this episode saying? What are these characters saying? What is the show saying? That was the place that I knew how to create from. Mm -hmm. And my episodes are, I think you'll find throughout are always sort of the more maybe they focus more on kind of emotional, thematic, sometimes romantic (laughs) um, Mm storylines. And Alan knew that and he embraced that about me. And that's why it worked well with us. Right. I'll be honest. I made a strong pitch because of Hoyt and Jessica for this, this episode, two or three. I would have been devastated had anyone else written those scenes because I knew exactly how I wanted it uh, to look and feel and sound. And it it was just, it was the stuff that delighted me and I knew I could do it. And so I had such an affinity for Jessica as a whole, but for those two characters in a relationship yeah. that I needed like in my heart to be the one <laughs> to bring them together. So I would have fought somebody if they had tried to get in the way of me writing that. So. Well, and I love and just want to point out to the listeners that that is a storyline that's not in the books, right? So this is something that really came from you, you know, that it it was uncharted waters. There was some sort of scaffold for Mm. most of the rest of the the show, except that character. True. I mean, Jessica was an invention that we came up with in the room. I remember that I named her. Um, I did not create her entirely, but I named her. (laughs) There were a lot of other people who weighed in on all the things that became Jessica, but I can see that. Oh my gosh. Well, one thing I just want to 
point out again, as people, you know, go back and rewatch these episodes and maybe have eyes on new things that we're bringing up. One thing that I am noticing with True Blood more and more, while it absolutely has a cohesion across all of the episodes, and it feels like, again, there is a thesis statement that every writer is writing towards, which is probably the Allen Ball of it all. I can feel the subtle sort of tonal differences for each writer. And I love it. Yeah. It creates a variety. Yeah. The episodes don't feel like they're kind of all the same wash. You know, oh, this one's a little more blue tinted and this one's a little more plaid, you know, like whatever it is. I, there's something so special mm -hmm. in that. And I noticed that even with the direction that there wasn't ever like a this is how you do glamoring. You know, each director got to kind of say, here's how I sort of want to represent that. And probably with the, the collaboration of the writers as well. And is that unique to feel like you had so much creative freedom in that support? Yeah, it's completely unique. Alan said very mm -hmm. early, I don't want to rewrite. My goal is to not rewrite. Yeah, it's to let you mm -hmm. tell the stories that you want to tell through the lens of this world. And he would still go into each script and, you know, tweak things and make lines better. But, you know, mostly he his go-to place was, you are here for a reason. And that's true of the writers. It was true of the actors. It was true of the directors and, you know, production. Like, it, all of the across the board, Alan said, I chose you to do your art. Mm -hmm. Go do your art within, you know, mm -hmm. the playground that I have built. Yeah. And, I can watch an mm -hmm. episode. I would not just because I was in the writers' room, but I, you could show me a scene right now of any episode of the show, and I can tell you immediately who's who wrote that. Yeah, because we wow. all had a very different tone, and we all wrote the show very differently. Yeah, and I think yeah that the that sort of contributed to the unpredictability of True Blood, which is what kind of made people keep watching was one of the reasons is like, yeah. what are they going to do next? And what are these characters capable of? And it, it never got routine. It never got like, oh yeah, here we go again with another scene like that. Because every one of us was sort of making the own, our own show inside our own heads. <laughs> yeah. And we were allowed to do that, right. which is yeah. remarkable. I tried to read on True Blood Wiki <laughs> to try to remember the episodes that you wrote and what I had to thank you for, right? <laughs> it's like there's, I was up way too late doing that, but, but I have to just, a, a couple that I found, first of all, Pam's Pumps, <laughs> which everywhere I go, fans ask me about Pam's Pumps. Talking to Deb, this always made me laugh so hard. These two juxtapose things when she says, how do you not drain someone? Basically, how do you calm yourself down? <laughs> Kind of like for a guy, how do you, you know, make it last? And I say, well, I think of soggy diapers and maggots. <laughs> <laughs> also, a real biggie. I am so sick of Sookie and her precious fairy vagina. Fuck, Sookie. One of the fucking greatest, man. I love oh it. Oh, my God. I love it, too, so much. Oh. Well, she's crying and then comforted <laughs> by Ginger. <laughs> you just killed that line oh, oh, it was just it. my dreams you made my dreams oh. come true so we've been asking everyone when you think of your experience on True Blood are there three words that come to mind gratifying adventurous 
a dream come true. Yeah. And yep. also my coming of age. Yeah. Uh, as an as an artist. Uh, both of those things um yeah. simultaneously painful and uh and <laughs> right. really just just yeah, breathlessly exciting. Uh, such a pleasure, yeah. Yes, thank, thank you. you for thank you, the thank time you and sharing. I know every time I got a Ryle Tucker script, I was like, yes. I know. It's going to be good. I know. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, both of you. I really cherish each of you for all that you are. Oh my gosh, Deb. Yeah. Just like, thank you for doing this podcast with me. I love these experiences (laughs) so much. I can't even stand it. It's really wonderful. And I think getting the opportunity, because Rael really, she means so much to me on a personal level, but on a professional level, what she wrote for us to do was incredibly meaningful. And the the care that she took with our characters and the opportunity to to say thank you, the opportunity to tell her in a very public forum how much she and her work means to me. That's a privilege. Next week on Truest Blood, there's a lot going on in the lives of our heroes, and we'll speak with some experts on how best to capture all that drama. We'll examine how the lighting, camera movement, and framing help craft our story. We'll speak with our beloved lead camera operator, Simon Jays, and go deep with Romeo Tarone. He is one of the geniuses behind the breathtaking cinematography on the show. And with a resume like his, you have probably seen his work many a time. In fact, you've seen him. This episode, when Sam is looking behind the bar, you can see Romeo in one of the pictures. He is the long-haired gentleman playing pool. Good eye, Deb. Yes, this is your chance to get a real look into the art of filmmaking. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening, Trubies. Subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcasts, and we'll see you next week. Y'all come back now, you're here. Got any burning questions you want answered on Truest Blood? Post them on any and all social media platforms using hashtag FangClubQuestions, and we may feature them on the show. That's hashtag F-A-N-G-C-L-U-B-Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N-S. Truest Blood is produced by Safe Haven for HBO Max. Executive producers are Janina Gavonkar, Kristen Bauer, and Deborah Ann Wool. Our producer is Gabrielle Gallon, and our audio producer is Christopher Wool. Our theme song was recorded just for this podcast by Jace Everett. Additional music was composed by Timo Chen. And remember, you can watch all of the original episodes of True Blood on HBO Max. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.